Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Daniel Andrews is widely regarded the most significant Labor figure since Paul Keating. He's been in power longer than any other state or territory leader currently and, if successful in the election outcome come November, will surpass John Cain as the longest-serving Victorian Premier. A new biography puts a fresh focus on the life and character of Daniel Andrews, charting his swift rise through the Labor ranks and his enduring popularity, which um, has remained steadfast despite a number of missteps throughout the pandemic and multiple corruption probes as well. The book is written by state political reporter over at The Age, Samaya Ilanby, and she joins me now on the line. Samaya, welcome. Thank you for having me, Dylan. Big congratulations on the book. Um, from what I can tell, this is an unauthorised biography. Did you seek Daniel Andrews' inputs um, when writing it? Uh, yeah, so I did um, obviously ask for an interview um, and I approached them multiple times, but um, yeah, they were declined. I guess they sort of, yeah, it was an unauthorised biography and I think I just wanted not to play any part, but, you know, it's understandable and totally fine. Yeah. And I mean, for a prominent political figure, as you note in the book, he doesn't tend to do all that many one-on-one interviews. Is that sort of notable or rare for a Premier who's been in power for so long? I think so. And I think in the book, I also sort of discuss um, how he's been... He's a politician, unlike many other politicians that we sort of currently see. He's um, he's very, very skilled. He's a highly competent politician. He's a very, very effective communicator. But he also has a very, um, you know, he's risen through the ALPs, I guess, you know, um, through... It's backrooms, essentially, you know, had a very precocious rise. And his attitude to media has been, I prefer social media because I can disseminate my information a lot more quickly. Um, I can disseminate it in a way that suits me best and I can disseminate it to a wider audience. And his leadership has obviously also coincided with a decline in the media landscape Um, You know, newsrooms have been hollowed out. There aren't as many um, state political reporters or even as many journalists as, Mm. let's say, 20 or 30 years ago. And I think, I I don't know if I'd call it surprising, but I think he's been able to have a very effective media strategy for the time, which hasn't always been good for transparency and democracy. Yeah, and I mean, you were one of the journalists who attended many of those daily press conferences throughout, um, you know, the the past couple of years and the extended lockdowns we had here in in Melbourne and Victoria as well, where, you know, Daniel Andrews would stand sometimes for hours on end and and pledge to answer every single question put to him by journalists. What did you learn about the Premier from those interactions? Uh, I think it sort of reinforced to me and a lot of close observers of politics um, just how skilled at communication he is. His ability to really um, distill complex information and present it very simply. And I think it also reinforced that just because he is responding to a question and just because he's responding to a question for about five or ten minutes or he's standing up for two hours doesn't necessarily mean um, doesn't necessarily mean that he's answering the substance of the question. He's been really good at being able to bat away being able to go on a tangent and at presenting, particularly during COVID, a very binary view of the world. So as journalists, if you'd ask for, you know, what are the other alternatives? Can you provide us a bit more information? Is it reasonable to suggest this, you know, um, when it contradicts X information? And his response always tends to be, you know, will the alternative is letting the virus rip and killing thousands of people? Is that what you want? Even though a lot of sane people were asking, no, that's not what we want, but we just want to know if there are any other alternatives. Um, can you please walk us through what it is that you're doing? But it was always, you know, a wall. No, 
if you don't agree with me, that means you are old people or very sick people killed, which, you know, I don't think was ever the case. Yeah, and, I mean, you refer to those press conferences in the book as, as propaganda cloaked as accountability. So from that, I mean, do you mean that there was sort of a, an attempt, I guess, to, to really sell what the government was doing beyond any real commitment to actually answering questions substantively? Um. I wouldn't go as far to say that he wasn't necessarily answering um, any of the questions. I think his ability to sort of stand up for two hours, um, you know, there was a commitment to a lot of different things, but Mm. at the end of... There was a health crisis that he absolutely needed to deal with. It was a health crisis that only, particularly in 2020... um, sort of from about May or July onwards, that Victoria was the only state dealing with it. Um, But there was also a political lens over this as well in that, and I sort of talk about this in the book, where, you know, a lot of ministers and the government did realise that if this virus escaped out of Victoria and it became a national problem, the political headache that Daniel Andrews and the Andrews government would have faced would have been far worse and far severe. So, of course, there was an element of, you know, saving people's lives about um, not letting this virus rip, about trying to, you know... um, trying to protect the elderly, particularly in aged care residents. But as with all government, and I don't necessarily say this in a pejorative way, there's, of course, a political element and, you know, political calculation that they need to make. Yeah. And, I mean, you referred to his very swift rise through the ALP, and and for anyone to do that, they need to be very adept at sort of navigating the the factional games within that particular party. What can you tell us about, I suppose, Daniel Andrews' beginnings as a politician? What motivated him to join the ALP and and what enabled his very fast rise through the party? Um, So, Daniel Andrews joined the Labor Party while he was at Monash University, um, which tends to be a fairly left-leaning... I didn't study at Monash, so maybe people can (laughs) correct me. But, you know, in the 90s, it was regarded as a far more left-leaning university, a far more politically active university. um, And joining the ALP at Monash University meant more likely than not that you would be joining the socialist left branch of the ALP. And I think from what I've been able to gather for Andrews, there was absolutely this sense of uh, fairness, the need for equality, the need for social security. Um, His father owned a small, like a milk bar um, in suburban working class Glenroy um, in the 70s. That place blew up um, when there was an arson attack on a supermarket next door. And Andrews has always spoken about how in his parents' greatest time of need, when they lost their entire business, their livelihood, their family income, there was no social security there. Um, They couldn't turn to the government for help. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't look anywhere for financial assistance. And I think there's been an element of that really motivating him. His dad was incredibly hardworking as well. So I think there was an element of that. He goes to Monash University, is involved with a couple of kids who happen to be Labor Party members, gets involved in the Labor Party that way. Um, And a lot of people have sort of said to me that, You know, when um, Daniel Andrews was at university, he was a very keen observer of US politics and he was particularly interested in global affairs. Um, I'm not saying that it was a surprise that he ended up in Victorian state politics, but I think, yeah, he, he was always a deep thinker about politics at university. Yeah, speaking with Samaya Ilanby, straight, uh, state political reporter over at The Age, all about her brand new biography of Daniel Andrews, which um, has come out just over the past couple of weeks. And, I mean, there are two sort of um, caricatures or, or images, I guess, we have of Dan Andrews often in the public eye, and you, you refer to this in the book. So one is the progressive social reformer, you know, who's overseen governments responsible for legislating um, for same-sex couples to be able to adopt, for instance, and voluntary assisted dying and, and um, pushing along the process of a treaty with First Nations people in this state. The other image that we get is the, the kind of narcissistic leader and, and um, backroom sort of 
factional uh, player who, you know, often shirks accountability and doesn't really love a whole lot of transparency. Uh, is there some element of truth to sort of both of those images? Yeah, I think so. And I don't think one necessarily negates the other. You can be a politician who's keenly interested, as he is, in um, not squandering his years in office, someone who really wants to leave um, a legacy of sorts, someone who really wants to be able to stamp his mark and his authority on the state or the country. Um, but I think that can, and with Andrews, it coexists best when he's also this very relentless boss who has a very high standard, expects high standards, but along the way he, I think, hurt, has personally hurt um, a lot of his colleagues and a lot of his friends as well. Yeah, and I'm interested in, in what your experience has been like reporting on the Victorian government and, and Dan Andrews in particular, I mean, especially over the past couple of years of the pandemic, because as you won't note in the book, even though he has, um, you know, enjoyed quite substantial popularity, he is divisive. People tend to have a very clear view of him, either in a positive or negative sense have you kind of been at all surprised or, or I suppose what has been your experience of, of reporting on him and the nature of the public's response to your reporting I think as a reporter it's been incredibly fascinating um you know reporting on a on a pandemic that you know the last significant pandemic of this scale was the Spanish flu which you know I wasn't alive back then. Um, so there's been, and you know, he's a very substantial politician who history books will remember, who will be studied at university. So I think as a political reporter, being able to watch history in the making and have like a front row seat to that has been, yeah, has been fascinating. <laughs> like I know I've said that word so many times now. Um, but yeah, just sort of seeing up close how he's able to utilise all of his different skills, how he's able to um, present such a united team when behind the scenes they aren't as united as what they seem. Behind the scenes there are a lot of people who, you know, a lot of his colleagues who who have been frustrated with him. Um, I recount um, in the book in 2000 and so around 2014-2015 straight after the Labor Party won um, and, you know, Andrews's first term, Andrews's first couple of years, there was this, and it didn't go anywhere, but there were these first attempts at a leadership spill because mm. he had colleagues who were so frustrated with his leadership style. So I think being able to witness all of that has been, um, yeah, it's been quite eye-opening as well, I guess, about politics and um, politicians. Yeah, I'm sure. And and what do you make of the, the resignations uh, you know, a few months ago of, of a number of very prominent members of the ALP and senior ministers as well, um, which sort of seemed as though it was timed to, to allow the government some kind of fresh air leading up to the November state election to sort of get some new people in, in relevant portfolios and, and then, you know, lead that sort of run up to, um, to the election in a few months' time. And what, what has that experience done to his kind of power base and standing within the ALP? Um, unfortunately, one of the things about um, writing a book about a sitting politician in, um, you know, seeking a third term, writing about current affairs is things happen and unfortunately <laughs> it's not in the book. And I guess the, you know, the cabinet reshuffle of June was one of those where I couldn't get him into the book because yeah. it happened after I'd sort of filed. But um, I wrote a piece for The Age. I think it might have been two weeks after that, after that leadership spill, just really, re like, recounting the the level of anger um, and just the level of frustration inside government caucus, inside the Cabinet, the way Andrews was able to really, I guess, um, pit, people against each other, the way he was really able to, you know, manipulate the the factional infighting to have Jacinta Allen installed as his deputy. And I think um, that sort of really explains his character, how ruthless he can be. There was also a moment when one of the MPs, um, 
the member for Eltham, Vicky Ward, she she essentially was going to go for Cabinet Secretary. Um, and what that means is you're generally the next cab off the rank for a Cabinet position. She would have had the numbers. She would have had, you know, the support of caucus. They were happy to um, give her the position of Cabinet Secretary. But... I was told by multiple people in the days after that event that um, the Premier and the Premier's close, I guess, colleagues and allies in Cabinet were calling around caucus members and wrongly accusing Vicky, um, Vicky Ward of leaking to media about Jacinta Ellen, and that's why they couldn't support her for Cabinet Secretary position. Um, and I think that sort of... Yeah, his ruthlessness and his ability to be able to coalesce different groups um, was really apparent during that. But the other thing that's apparent um, through that is, at the time, there are a lot of uh, Labor MPs who didn't want Jacinta Allen installed as Deputy Leader of the Labor Party. And I, I asked every single one of them, well, who else would you like? Who do you think should replace... And there wasn't a real answer to that question because there wasn't a real alternative. And I think what Andrews has done um, over the years is he's been able to really silence dissent in caucus. That's been... He's been able to present a sense of unity because the silence is, um, you know, dissent is silenced in caucus, but it also means that people haven't been able to speak up, people haven't been able to explore their own ideas, people haven't been able to develop those leadership qualities. So when the Premier steps down, um, you're left with, you know, you're left with a front bench or a caucus who aren't as articulate and who aren't as politically skilled as what Daniel Andrews has been. Yeah. It's the current Victorian government has overseen uh, a ballooning of the state's uh, prison population and the increasing numbers of people held in remand, which really escalated after um, James Gargosoulos mowed people down on Burke Street a number of years ago. And, and some, I suppose, detractors of, of Dan Andrews have pointed to this real kind of tough-on-crime approach, which flies in the face of some of the other progressive policies that they've put forward and, and managed to get through Parliament. What do you make of the kind of law and order issues and and the extent to which um, the government will sort of continue down this path, given, you know, the substantial cost, I suppose, to, um, you know, building more prisons and and renovating prisons to house more people? Um, I think there are two very recent examples. Before the last election, the government had promised a a youth justice legislation that has been completely scrapped. That's not coming... um, It obviously can't because there's only a week left of Parliament. But I reported a couple of months ago that the government had completely scrapped the idea of introducing a youth justice legislation bill um, because the Premier was worried about a a law and order campaign in the lead-up to the election. There's also another particularly important bill, um, the the complete name of it escapes me, but it was around child protection and empowering Aboriginal organisations to, um, you know, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children who needed child protection services would be able to get that service from a child, from an Aboriginal organisation. Um, you know, good step in the name of, like, you know... Um, good step towards self-determination, etc. Um, the Greens introduced an amendment. Most MP, most non-government MPs introduce amendments to government MPs to, to improve um, the legislation. The government can vote against it. Um, you know, people can move on. But the Greens introduced an amendment to that bill to raise the age of criminal responsibility to 14. The opposition had already said that they won't support the amendment. The government said they won't support the amendment. So they could have debated the amendment and, you know, it would have fallen through if that's not what the government wanted. But they were so afraid of having that debate about Mm. raising the age of criminal responsibility in Parliament that they shelved this this incredibly important piece of legislation that Aboriginal organisations and First Nations communities had been calling for. Yeah, well, that's, that's that's interesting. I suppose that's the um, yeah, the, the political strategist, very much sort of clear to see in, in Daniel Andrews and 
and the government. Um, uh, I'm sort of almost out of time. There's so many other questions I could ask you, but um, I suppose just to touch on um, corruption and integrity issues, there have been a, a couple of probes into um, the ALP's uh, uh, kind of activities in Victoria, the, the red shirt scandal from a number of years ago, and then the recently completed IBAC and Victorian Ombudsman report into branch stacking and so on. I mean, what do you make of the fact that there has still been a relatively high level of support for Daniel Andrews and the current government here, despite those probes into their actions? One of the things that has uh, worked really in favour of the Labor Party here in Victoria is the ineffectiveness of the Liberal Party. Um, So... I think you have Victoria, which is naturally a very progressive state, tends to be, you know, more educated, more progressive than the rest of the nation. And then you have a Labor leader, and you had that with Steve Brax, you had that with John Kane as well. They're fairly, um, you know, they're fairly competent and highly skilled politicians. You really grew into their leadership. So you have that going in their favour. But you also have a Liberal Party that has been so bitterly divided that they don't that they haven't been able to articulate what they stand for. They don't know what they stand for. They don't know who they're representing. They've been on the sidelines for so long um, in opposition that they don't even know what government, I think, looks like. They were in government for a year between a term between 2010 and 2014, and they blew it up spectacularly. Um, so I think people get frustrated at, you know, the brand stacking, the corruption probes, um, you know, the, the, the lack of transparency, um, the government being mired in so many other different scandals. They lost so many different ministers to so many different things. You have that, and then people look at the coalition and they think, well, are you really a viable alternative? And I think that's what's worked best for the Labor Party, the fact that, you know, Victorians haven't been able to look to the coalition and think that they're a viable government. Yeah, and and just lastly, Samaya, I mean, if the Victorian government is re-elected come November, do you expect that Daniel Andrews would serve out a, a full term or um, or give up the job at some point? Uh, give it up. Um, by 2026, they would have been in... Labor would have been in government for three terms. I think a lot of people, including the Labor Party, are expecting um, Labor to lose 2026. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen between now and 2026. We haven't even had the 2022 (laughs) election. But, um, you know, people inside the Labor Party are also... They think that their best chances in 2020 are... They think they might be either a minority government, which they're quite worried about, or a government with just a one or two, three-seat majority. Um, And then, you know, by all accounts, Andrews will step down within the next year or two, um, and that gives way for the next leader of the Labor Party to assert themselves to gain a bit of familiarity with the Victorian public, and then you go to the 2026 election with a new Labor leader. Yeah, well, let's let's see what happens. Um, it's a really fascinating book, and I mean, I've got so many more questions, but I've taken up a good amount of your time. Thanks so much for, for spending some time with us on Triple R this morning, and congrats. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app. The federal government is considering a suite of changes to help bolster Australia's democracy. A parliamentary inquiry into this year's federal election is calling for submissions specifically on reforms to political donations and truth in political advertising, among other issues. Professor George Williams is an expert in constitutional and electoral law and is Deputy Vice-Chancellor of the University of New South Wales. He's one of over 200 people who have so far made submissions to the inquiry and joins me now on the line. George, welcome to Triple R. Thank you. And so we do have laws around truth in advertising in general in this country. It's illegal, for instance, for companies to mislead consumers. But why haven't there been federal laws on on truth in political advertising specifically? Well, I think the problem is that our politicians have been very good at regulating others. Yes, businesses and the like with the law of defamation, all sorts of areas where we regulate lies that cause harm. But 
uh, apart from South Australia and now the ACT, um, our elected representatives just haven't seen fit to regulate themselves. And I think that does need to change. And it's just as a business, say, lying about a product can cause harm to the community, so too can a politician uh, lying about their policies or those of someone else because it distorts our democracy and means they can take advantage of people to get the votes they shouldn't. And could you think of any particular sort of standout examples of where political um, kind of campaign around election time and so on has substantially misled the electorate? Yeah, a common one is where uh, one person lies about the policies of another person. So it may be a person says this other party will introduce a debt tax and that other party has said categorically they will not and they do not have such a policy, and yet it's claimed they do. Uh, another example might be about changes to Medicare. That comes up a fair bit. Mm. But often what you find is people misrepresent and lie about what someone else stands for, and even their categorical denials aren't enough because the, the mere suggestion can be quite influential for some people and how they'll cast their vote. Absolutely. I mean, it has become quite sort of par for the course come election time. And those two examples you touch on, um, you know, arguably played a significant role in some election, federal elections in recent memory. I wonder if we can talk a bit about the precedent that's set in South Australia. We've had uh, laws regulating political advertising in there since the 1980s. How have those laws worked in practice? They've worked pretty well, actually, and and they've worked well because they haven't been overused, and it's important here. We don't want to impede a robust democracy. People need to have their opinion. Um, All the South Australian law does is say that if uh, if you present something that is demonstrably false, something that can be shown to be inaccurate and misleading, well, then the law kicks in. But if there's doubt about it or if opinion, it's not. So you've actually got to be saying something that is wrong and can be shown to be wrong, in that case, you have the possibility of fines. The Electoral Commissioner can request the withdrawal of advertisements. And we've had many instances where this happened. And it, it, it's not perfect, but it does mean that politicians need to be careful there uh, not to tell lies about things that can be shown to be false. Some might say that, that once a falsehood has been put out into the world and might be widely circulated on social media and so on, that the damage can be already done in that sense, that you know it might have cut through for the public and they might even miss that there's been a, a retraction or a correction at some point along the line. How can, can laws kind of appropriately regulate a, against lies, lies and falsehoods putting, being put out there when, when that can happen, when it can kind of take on a life of its own in the digital media ecosystem that, that we are surrounded by these days? Yeah, and that's a problem because it may be that somebody uh, deliberately lies uh, for political advantage and is just prepared to pay a fine, you know, a $5,000 fine in South Australia for a person. But maybe it's worth doing that because you think it might win you the election. Uh, There is a possibility of correcting the public record, but again, that just doesn't cut through on social media in many instances. So I think when it comes to a federal law, we need to ask ourselves, do we need to go further? Um, I think it's worthwhile considering even criminal penalties for someone who deliberately tells a lie, knowing that it's going to breach the regime, does it for political benefit, because unless it's something stronger of that kind, there's a risk that you'll just have people saying, well, paying a fine is the cost of doing business here, that the cost you pay in order to win an election. And this is, is one area that Labor has flagged. It's, it's you know, at least potentially willing to, to legislate on. Do you have much of a sense of how far they might be willing to go, whether they, they you know, would consider those kinds of, of criminal penalties under some circum- circumstances? I think it's open at the moment. I mean, yes, the new government has clearly signalled their willingness to look at this, and we have this uh, Joint Standing Committee of Electoral Matters, which is inquiring into this and other issues. So we'll have to see what sort of community support gets behind it. Um, but I think that I think there's an open door at the moment to have the debate, and uh, we've just got to see whether there's sufficient expertise and community support to actually drive a really robust and strong model because we certainly don't want something that's that's weak and uh, looks good on paper but actually doesn't drive behaviour and change. Do you see a real potential for making progress on, I mean, to stick with truth in political advertising in the moment, to to make progress on some of these issues given the current makeup of federal parliament with, I suppose, Labor and government after, um, you know, a a long time of coalition being in power, but also Teals and and the makeup of the Senate with the Greens playing quite a, a prominent role as well? I do. I think this is arguably the best opportunity since the 1990s uh, to actually get some reform in this area because uh, 
it's the first time in a long time not only is there a government interested in these issues, but also the Senate. Critically, the Senate um, is actually aligned where... Uh, Labor plus Greens plus Independent or two, uh, you can get things up. And not only that, the people who have the casting vote are indicating that integrity in politics is a very high order priority for them. So just like the National Integrity Commission and the like, there is the opportunity now to drive some long overdue changes, uh, not just in this area, not just about truth in advertising for politicians, but also things like uh, putting caps on donations, actually clearing up what is really a soft form of corruption within the political process. So there's a lot that needs to be done because, frankly, it's been a couple of decades since we had the reform we needed. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking with Professor George Williams, who's Deputy Vice-Chancellor over at University of New South Wales and also an expert on constitutional law and electoral law, among other things. And, and I mean, you, you touch on political um, donations reform in your submission. Another thing that you argue for is broadening electoral participation in Australia and, and potentially extending the vote um, to Australians living overseas and also lowering the voting age to 16. I wonder if you can talk through some of your ideas in that respect. Yeah, I think uh, I think we need a positive agenda here as well. And one thing that's progressively happened in Australia is we've broadened out who can vote. Of course, we extended it to 18-year-olds in the 1970s. And around the world, the new frontier is very often extending it to 16- and 17-year-olds. So you look at the UK, there's a large debate. But you can also look at places like... Uh, Oh, Argentina, Norway, Germany, Austria. There's a real movement around the world to say 16 is the right age. Um, I personally support that. I, I think that uh, it's a good time to twin it with civics education, I think, and have often seen people at that age really motivated, uh, really wanting to take part in their democracy. But I would say I'm happy for it to be voluntary at 16 and 17. I, I wouldn't force them to vote, but if they'd like to do so, I think they should have the option the other area that's really dealing with a long-term problem is that at the moment we say you can't vote if you're uh, what's called of unsound mind. And mm. it's just not appropriate in this day and age. It goes back decades, hundreds, more than 100 years, in fact, of dealing with people with intellectual disabilities through this really outdated term. And we just need to look at this again and ask not to how do we prevent people from with intellectual disabilities from voting, but how do we facilitate them having a vote. We need to flip it, in essence, and I think that's an important part of this inquiry as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, what would be the, the sort of democratic benefits, do you think, of, of broadening, uh, the, the, I suppose, you know, the types of people, the age of people, um, and the sort of demographic profile of people who can vote? Because you can argue for greater participation just as having a, you know, merit in itself. But do you imagine that it could potentially change the way that politics is done or what kinds of issues gain prominence if electoral participation is extended? Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, let's just take that issue of people with intellectual disabilities, giving them the vote they deserve uh, may well have an impact in terms of politicians appealing to them more, thinking more about policies for people in that area, the NDIS and the like, and making them active participants in democracy rather than just the recipients of welfare and, welfare and other benefits. And when it comes to 16 and 17-year-olds, one thing that's really impressed me in other parts of the world is how that's just brought an influx of energy and ideas uh, into the political system. And uh, it's been really very effective in often debating longer-term issues, uh, things like climate change and the like have more readily come to the fore. As younger people have said, we're looking decades ahead, uh, not just what the tax system, for example, is now. And uh, I think that's brought a burst of energy into political systems has been very welcome. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's good that there is a focus on some of these issues. Um, it's been great spending some time with you this morning on Triple R. Thanks so much. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. It's often said that referendums are very hard to win and that was once again proven the case recently in Chile. Around 62% of people voted against changing the country's constitution which was drafted in 1980 under dictator Augusto Pinochet to formally enshrine a raft of social rights including things like gender equity and recognition of Indigenous peoples. The highly anticipated referendum came uh, shortly after the election of a new progressive government in Chile which happened amid other centre-left parties winning elections across Latin America 
over the past few years as well. And attention is now turning to Brazil, where the right-wing populist Jair Bolsonaro is facing off against a former president over there too. And to shed light on the current political climate over in that part of the world, I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Raul Sanchez Uribari, Senior Lecturer in Crime, Justice and Legal Studies at La Trobe University. Raul, thanks for coming on. It's great to have you back on the show. Oh, thank you very much, Dylan. It's great to be back at Triple R. And so let's start with the referendum in Chile. Can you uh, provide a bit of context around why why it came about? Why it came about? Um, it came about, I think, some historical reasons, some uh, reasons related to the particular juncture, right, of the past uh, of the past few years. Um, historically, as you mentioned, uh, the constitution that Chile uh, has had until now, since 1980, was drafted and uh, created in the context of a dictatorship, in, of Augusto Pinochet's dictatorship. And that means that Chile's democrat- democracy project for the past three decades has happened in the context of an authoritarian constitution. And and that, of course, creates a series of tensions. The constitution has been reformed, uh, amended in multiple times in the past in the past few years, but still, it doesn't really capture the, the, the social-political uh, diversity and richness and the particular um, incarnation of Chile as a democratic society as it is today. So that's the historical side of things. Uh, on the other hand, and in the past few years, uh, Chile has been, um, has, you know, the Chilean economy has been uh, growing significantly for the, past, for, for the past couple of decades, but at the same time, inequality has increased. So the uh, benefits of all of, of that growth that are not really uh, distributed in a way that that's uh, fair, equitable, and that's something that, of course, hits a large proportion of Chileans. So I feel that that's probably a key issue that motivated people taking the streets at some point, particularly three years ago, and that ended up leading to the Constitutional Convention as a potential solution for addressing that and other issues. Yeah, and, and as you say, there were quite widespread protests a number of years ago, just sort of before the pandemic hit, really. And, and the current government is led by 36-year-old Gabriel Boric. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Yeah, who's a former right. <laughs> former student activist um, as well, who's kind of great gained ascendancy, I guess, in that context. But talking about constitutions, they can be written in legalese. I don't know how many people listening would have read Australia's constitution for example, but was there a real kind of push here to, to, I suppose, redefine in some ways what the country stands for and what people would want to see in essentially what becomes its founding document? Yeah, absolutely. I think part of the I think part of the issue. Now we were talking about, of course, the the, the creation of the of the constitutional project that was that was uh, submitted to to referendum and in the end didn't pass in the in the, in the recent plebiscite. The um, the the I feel on one hand uh, the project. Uh, I think capture um, to a large degree the current zeitgeist in in terms of uh, creating of reflecting uh, Chilean diversity. Uh, it uh, was uh, very um, progressive in terms of indigenous rights. In terms of um, you know it was a create constitution constitutional project. The constitutional convention was is the first constitutional convention create, uh, created and organized on the basis of gender parity. Uh, it was really inclusive, and the election of the representatives themselves was also created in a way that um, diminished the input of, polit- of existing political parties and tried to reflect Chilean society. And this is the catch. To some degree, one might say, huh, that was a problem too, because political parties, whether you know we like it or not, they, they also help articulate visions, they help negotiate questions, bargain, etc. And you need that to create to have a process that is also effective, mm. that also comes up with solutions that have a reasonable level of consensus. And also to some degree marshal the different interests existing and so forth. Um, that was probably a problem. And and I feel that that ended up also uh, creating a sense of, 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 of messiness in the creation of the constitution that didn't really look right for a, for a country that's to some degree used to institutional life representing interests in a more structured way. Let's put it that way. Um, that hurt the prospects of the, of the constitutional project, I feel. 
It's interesting because, I mean, reflecting on, on Australia's uh, referendum in 1999 on Republic, which, of course, failed, um, there you know, it seems to be relatively high support for the idea of a republic, but it was in the question of how a president might be elected, exactly how that process would work that perhaps confused people and led to, um, you know, the majority of people rejecting that particular outcome. So, I mean, are there any any sort of lessons that you think Australia can, can take from what's happened in Chile? Obviously, very different circumstances, but now we're looking potentially at a referendum on a voice to parliament for First Nations Absolutely. people to represent First Nations people. And also, you know, that the idea of a republic is back in the conversation following the death of um, Queen Elizabeth II. No, I'm, I'm really glad you're bringing that up. I mean, the whole uh, the whole experience of the um, constitutional uh, reform uh, project and in in Chile and the ongoing conversation because you no know, Chile is still in the process of, of reforming its, its, its constitution is is quite instructive for for Australia. Um, the as much as we have you no know, one of the lessons that comes from it is is to be to be as open to be as inclusive as possible, but also. Um, be very careful about not politicizing what doesn't need to be politicized. Mm. Um, probably try to capture also the need. It's it's it be open to moderation in key issues because then sometimes if some proposals are pushed too much on one side, then unfortunately they miss the political center. And at that point, we're looking at processes that need at least a majority vote. Then you might lose the majority. Um, so that's that's I feel uh, a lesson: uh, be as inclusive as possible, but also with an eye to the overall support of the population that you need in the end to not only pass those reforms but also implement them later on. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, what now then? So in Chile, this uh, this referendum, you know, lost. Um, it didn't didn't get up. Um, what does it mean for those progressive ideals around sort of inequality and gender equity and and representation, full acknowledgement of indigenous peoples and so on in that country? I think. Look, I mean, I don't think that everything, um, even if it's a, a major blow, I don't think that it's a total loss or anything like that. I mean, for two reasons. Now, first of all, um, the, the, the President Borges, of course, is still in power. It's um, any crisis can also offer the opportunity to recalibrate the agenda, to you know, perhaps be more open to negotiate with some you know, parts of the political spectrum that that might not be necessary before, and say, okay, now that's one side. Uh, the other is that the constitutional reform process is is still ongoing in the sense that they are still figuring out what would be the best way to move forward, uh, either with piecemeal reform or something that still reflects uh, a certain level of ambition in terms of redrafting the Constitution. But the need, the drive, uh, the origin of the need for modifying the Constitution is still there, and the Constitution will be modified. That's that, And that, I think, is, is in the end will be pivotal for Chilean society. Mm. Speaking with Dr. Raul Sanchez Uribari, Senior Lecturer in Crime Justice and Legal Studies at La Trobe University, talking all about the recent uh, failed referendum in Chile, um, but also kind of what's going on in that country. And I want to zoom out um, to sort of take in the broader political dynamics in that part of the world, because it's often been said that there's almost a a second pink tide happening over there, which is um, the election of kind of centre-left progressive governments in a number of different countries, which has happened over the past number of years. And this follows on a a sort of similar trend that happened in um, in the early 2000s as well. I mean, is it fair to make those links between different countries that have their own political cultures and and experiences? No, uh, thank you so much for bringing that up. Yes and no. Uh, on one hand, yes, that those those changes are speaking to broader changes that might be happening regionally, and we could even extract lessons. Uh, you know, beyond Latin America, for to, to some to some degree, uh, reflective for for example of the need for fairness, for care, uh, after, you know, in the in the context of the post pandemic that really isn't as we as we were talking about before before chatting on on live. Um, but the other thing, of course, is each country, of course, has its own dynamic, and some countries have really interesting dynamic going on right now. As we know, Brazil has a presidential election coming up. That's the biggie, I think, in terms of the most significant political news coming out of the of the region. But at the same time, if you've been paying attention to what's going on in Argentina, Colombia, with the election of Gustavo Petro recently, Mexico, it's it's, it's really a lot of things are happening in the region. Yeah, and uh, and what are some of the the kind of key focuses, I suppose, that might 
unite some of those different contexts? I mean, is it things around inequality? Is it, is it sort of pandemic politics coming out of it as well, where there might be a greater awareness of, of those that, you know, are not really doing too well out of society currently? I think, look, I mean, some of, this, some of the changes uh, to some degree are systemic. I mean, and prior, they were already accumulating prior to, to COVID-19 in terms of frustration with the, um, with, with the way institutions work, I mm. think is one key problem. We're talking about a region, I mean, even when people think about Latin America, many people unfortunately still think of, you know, of the, of the region that's, uh, you know, captured by dictatorships from Mexico to Argentina. Oh, this is a region that is, from the most part, democratic. The issue is now the question of the quality of democracy. What kind of democracy is it really working? For who is it working and to what ends? Hence the question of inequality, but also the quality of institutions. You know, mm. Latin Americans are fed up with corruption. Latin Americans seem to be fed up with the lack of effective representation. And that's something that definitely connects all the way from Patagonia all the way up to Rio Grande. I mean, that's definitely a connecting thread. Yeah. And so let's talk a bit about Brazil then, an election coming up at the start of next month. Um, listeners would, I'm sure, be to some extent familiar with Jair Bolsonaro, the right-wing populist figure who's been in power over there for a number of years. How do sort of things look from, from where you sit in terms of the likelihood of, of him getting up and what could happen if he does win another term, given issues around um, uh, kind of allegations of, of corruption and, and the sort of, I suppose, trashing of institutions that's happened under his watch that has been parallels made with, you know, Trump's presidency in the United States? And, and it, it is. And it, 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 it is actually quite worrying. I mean, I, I don't think that he has a reasonable shot at staying in power. But the issue is that he's still creating, as we know, the image that the, if he doesn't win, then there is, it's because the powers that be doesn't let him mm. win or because the system is not working and so forth to delegitimize the system. That's that's his main that's his main goal. And that, of course, is a, that, that would be a major blow for, uh, for Brazilian democracy once he loses he won't go anywhere we've seen what's happened in the context of the of the US with Trump um, what would happen for example in the context of, of Brazil where where uh, is not a space that where all institutions are weak some institutions actually actually hold and it does have a, a vibrant civic society in many in many ways but at the same time um, we've seen that it, that these tensions can actually impair the way the country works and and that's I think is the main the main problem. And what do you think people would take from the nature of his leadership after over the past uh, four years? Um, I think it's it's been. I mean, we have you know had a pandemic as we mentioned. Um, do you think there is this kind of appetite for right wing populist leaders, or that people aren't so concerned about? I suppose some of those you know identity politics issues yeah. that can gain currency amid these styles of election campaigns. I think when we see um, when we when we see leaders like him, or for example like Bukele now in, in El Salvador, which is which is is a case that I feel is is unfortunately not being paid attention a lot to. I mean, democracy is effectively collapsing in El Salvador as we as we know it. Mm. It collapsing in Nicaragua, the Ortega. I mean, it's 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 as you can see, this is a problem, and, and certainly in Venezuela under Maduro. I mean, this is a problem in, in left and right. Um, but coming back to to Bolsonaro. Uh, the main issue is each one of these countries, even again, if might, there might be a connected thread also with populist movements elsewhere in the, in the world, right? I mean, um, talking about groups of population that now can connect directly with a leader through different mechanisms, um, you know, divisive discourses that can work really well for a purpose of building a majority and whatnot. Uh, that's certainly something that has happened in, in Brazil with, with Bolsonaro. Um, that form of politics, unfortunately, I think, in the region is there to stay for the same reasons that we've seen, else, seen elsewhere in the world. Yeah. And I mean, I know we're sort of jumping around quite a bit in yeah. the region, but I do want to ask you about Venezuela, because this is it's a country that you have sort of an intimate connection to. And um, and it, it has sort of, I suppose, um, you know, faded from consciousness, likely for an Australian audience. We heard about economic collapse and, and the kind of um, political tensions and turmoil a number of years ago. Um, uh, it sort of, I suppose, escalated following Nicolas Maduro's election in 2013. And, and we've had countries around the world declaring that Juan Guaido is their sort of rightful president, but he hasn't sort of managed to, um, to you know, come into power in that country. What's the current state of things over there? And, and to what extent have those issues and, and economic political turmoil continued? Um, look, I mean, the, the most important um, issue to, to bring up is that first problem is, of course, 
how people are living on a daily basis. Mm. Now, putting the, the, the politics of the situation aside, which of course is a, is a, is a big issue, but um, almost 7 million people have left the country in the last few years. That's rough numbers. We're talking about one in five Venezuelans. Um, even if you say, no, it's, it's been five million, it's a huge amount of people. And we're looking at a country that is still trying to uh, reconcile itself with that reality. It's a country that has lost close to 70% of its GDP in the past five, six years. Now, as I tell people, this is the equivalent of you leaving off you know, five cows in the back and killing three for a family. Now, imagine what the effect that would be for a whole country, right? I mean, that's, and, and of course, we're looking at a country that for a really long time functioned in a very different way. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, it's a country that is significantly poorer, that is significantly smaller, that is that where services don't work. And now turning our attention to politics, where politics is now, unfortunately, marked by authoritarianism. Um, Maduro's regime is an authoritarian regime. We could talk about the different reasons why that is the case, you know, to what degree, who's, who's to blame, etc. But that's the reality. And he's the effective president. Uh, that's, he's the one who is in power. Um, de jure, of course, the country still has two presidents who claim power. Um, but... In, in reality, and for a daily basis, Maduro is effectively effectively president and de facto president in a way and, and so forth and commands, of course, all the state institutions. He, in the past year and a half, the economy has stabilized a bit more than it used to be. So pretty much the bloodshed stopped to some degree and uh, uh, the hemorrhage. And, but at the same time, still the inflation rate is closer to probably 200% a year. I mean, mm. it's still really high. Um, and there is a common phrase in the last few months that's been circulating in, in the net every now and then, Venezuela is fixed now. Venezuela se arregló. The reality is it's fixed now for a relatively small portion of the population who have either access to, to hard currency, particularly dollars, through different mechanisms. We're talking probably about one in five Venezuelans, right? And the the rest of the of the economy most people have to live probably with about a dollar a day or two so that gives you an idea it's it's a country that is most unequal that it's ever been and that is most dysfunctional that it's ever been unfortunately yeah um we've seen since the election of the labor government here um a couple of months ago um a sort of focus, I guess, on international issues in the Asia-Pacific and so on. And, um, you know, Anthony Albanese went over for a meeting with the Quad a day after getting elected here in in Australia. But, I mean, there hasn't been much discussion around what the government, what kind of engagement there might be with with Latin American countries, for example. Um, And, you know, you can suggest that maybe there's less of a sort of trade relationship and that's why there isn't as much of a focus on, on some of these countries. But I suppose speaking about the situation in Venezuela and, and you know, the um, Venezuelans we have living in the Australian community as well, I mean, what kind of approach do you think the Australian government should take to some of the political issues happening over in Latin America? Uh, look, uh, absolutely. The most important the most important element that connects Australia with uh, Latin America is people-to-people's connections. Mm. Um, Latin, there are hundreds of thousands of uh, Latin Americans and Australians of Latin American descent living in Australia, and there are, there are thousands of Australians who engage with Latin America in, in a variety of ways, you know, economy, politically, socially, and so forth. And there is a lot of, of um, possibilities in, in, those, in those relations. And I'm really hoping that the, that the Albanese government can, can see it. I am certain that uh, Penny Wong sees it because she's, she, uh, it's, it's well known that she's aware of the potential of the region, among other things, because from a very early age, she has spent, if I recall correctly, a year in Brazil. Um, as, right. as an exchange student. I didn't know that. And she did mention at some point, yeah, she did mention at some point, you know, if you, if you have to go to one place, um, you know, Latin America is a great place to go. I, I hope that that's the kind of spirit that, some, that somehow the Albanese government can, um, can harness to, to uh, reinforce relations with Latin America in general. But two things very quickly. One, we need our own, we need to increase and, and enhance our own perceptions and views of the region. And, and we need to, to be forced thinking about specific initiatives that just use that power, that communication with the people that we already engage with and mm. with the communities that we have here, as you're, as you're bringing up. I think that's, that's key. And from that, different opportunities and options then will flow. Um, it's probably the, the central, the central 
uh, issue. Yeah, there's a lot to pick apart. We're going to have to have you back and, and talk about some of these issues some more, but it's been great scanning sort of the current state of, of, of politics and what's happening over in Latin America at the moment. There's lots going on and lots of things to talk about. So thanks so much for coming in and I look forward to chatting again soon. Anytime. Love coming here. Thank you so much, Dylan. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.